Thank you for joining us again here at Homeland, the podcast. And if you just found us, welcome. My name is Frank Foreman, and I'm the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. Our mission is to bring you yesterday's pioneers, today's leaders, and tomorrow's visionaries within the realm of Homeland Security. Many of our episodes have featured those leaders of today and visionaries of tomorrow, but in this episode, we're having a conversation with one of yesterday's pioneers, Mr. Andy Mitchell. But a bit of a background first. What prompted funding towards training and educating the country's emergency responders and leaders of government? Shortly after the end of the Cold War, we entered into the country's next era of conflict, one of terrorism. This era was heralded in with the 1993 World Trade Center attack and the 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City. These events prompted the government to pass the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. Several items were supported from this act, one of which was funding to better prepare the emergency response community in addressing weapons of mass destruction. After the attacks of September 11th and the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the increase in funding for tactical training was expanded to include building the critical thinking capacity within the Homeland Security enterprise. In 2002, we saw the establishment of the Homeland Security Centers for Excellence. Then in 2003, additional funding was allocated to expand education even further. One of these undertakings occurred at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Let's take a walk into the past and hear about the origin story of the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. Okay, welcome. Andy Mitchell is who I have here today on the show. And what we're actually going to talk about, or Andy's really going to talk about, is where the nexus came from developing or creating the Center for Homeland Defense and Security here in Monterey at the Naval Postgraduate School. So before we actually begin, Andy, I'd love for you to give people background of who you are and whatever you'd like to say about you. Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to participate in this discussion here. I love it when I come back to Monterey. It's never a bad trip. I recently retired from uh, the Department of Homeland Security, FEMA. Prior to that, I was I worked at the Department of Justice, Bureau of Justice Assistance, when we were doing drug grant programs then. But after the Mira City bombing, if you remember that, and then the Oklahoma City bombing, the Mira uh, Federal Office building, uh, there were a number of legislative actions that took place relatively quickly, actually within just about a year between the event in Oklahoma City and the actual introduction and, and enactment of legislation called the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. Federal government usually doesn't operate that fast. They have been working on some type of legislation, debating it for 10 years. That dealt with uh, dealing with overseas challenges, uh, securing nuclear materials overseas. It was just a huge thing, but there was one little section in there, section 813, that authorized the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Justice Assistance to provide training to state and local fire and law enforcement. And we got some money appropriated for that the following year. It grew over time, but we had 200 and something million dollars, which is pretty good mm -hmm. to start with. Prior to 9-11, uh, the year after 9-11, our budget went to four and a half billion dollars. Little increase in money. So right that's there. a little bit. Yeah. And out of that came a huge expansion of the focus of the program. We had been operating five training centers around the country, but that was teaching people skills and tasks to do their jobs in a WMD environment. And it was it was a, it was a very success program. Still is. Those institutions continue to be funded 
uh, and they continue to train uh, millions of people every year. But as we tried to define what the challenge of, it was called domestic preparedness back then, there really was no definition of it. Historically, if you look back, uh, law enforcement didn't talk to fire, fire didn't talk to emergency management, nobody talked to the public health service. So it was a very disjointed system. And that was really the biggest challenge is to break down those old, uh, I guess, barriers and historical and uh, organizational limits to allow people to think about the opportunities to address uh, what evolved into Homeland Security. So with that said, after uh, 9-11, my office was moved to the Department of Homeland Security. We were one of the 22 agencies that got picked up and shoved over there. And we were working closely with our Senate appropriators, the staff there, particularly um, on uh, what we're going to do. How do we, how do we address these, this huge emerging both expectation for the public that the government was going to do something about this terrorist thing after 9-11, and also how to do it in a reasonable and rational way so that there would be a, a long-term impact and, a, and an ability to continue and sustain efforts, even if the money did go away. And it has. I mean, it's obviously gone down since then. But fortunately, Jim Bohart, who was our staff director on our appropriations committee in the Senate, we had a great relationship. My boss was a presidential appointee from Democrats during the Clinton administration, Laurie Robinson. I had Attorney General Reno. It was one of those things, I guess, where hopefully it'll happen again, but it really was a time where the, the American political and public came together right. with a agreed-upon focus uh, and a commitment to do something. And so it was really, like I said, a, probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me as a federal government employee to be able to kind of create these things. And I don't say I didn't do it. I had a staff of people, and a lot of the direction we got was from the Congress, mm -hmm. as was the case back then. There were a lot of earmarks and stuff back then. Some people like them, some people don't. Actually, I liked them because it helped us. It helped we got you, a lot yeah. of money that way. But we were doing so much training for, like I said, for tasks specific for the police, fire, EMS, and, uh, and all the uh, first responder disciplines that what was missing was there were people in positions that were making decisions and running agencies as this evolving mission of Homeland Security was foisted upon everybody. And then there was the next generation of people that need to really be, we need to be tra training them to, to, to take this program over. Not the program, but the mission of Homeland Security. And this new redefined mission space where every police, fire, everybody has to cooperate, federal, state, and local, the private sector, it really is a very complex system of systems that has evolved. Uh, and I think that's one of the real benefits, if you can say, there's a benefit from something like 9-11. Uh, there's an awakening that we're not just in our little stovepipe and right. we do no our more, job. No, no more, more siloing, get yeah. past the siloing. No, I don't say it was not some, well, no, it's, get, certainly, it's right. certainly dissipated a great we, deal. We want to get rid of the siloing yes. is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're already saying is we've done a lot of tactical things and, and the people who were running it were still sort of thinking tactically rather than more of a large-scale strategic overview or picture of what's going on. But, but that they didn't, weren't doing it, there was no concept of how to do it right, or what you should be doing. So our budget, I guess I've forgotten what year it was, maybe 2003, there was a little line in our budget that said uh, established. Well, I mean, I talked, we, we talked to our, the staffers up there. We said, okay, we're doing a lot to train task level, which is good. We really need that. What we don't have is any kind of an executive critical thinking capability to 
bring in the best and brightest people that are doing this and prepare them for what the next step is. At that time, I don't think there were any graduate programs in Homeland Security because, like I said, no one really knew what it was. Certainly we didn't. We were kind of in the middle of trying to figure out how to cobble this system together, but there was no roadmap. There was no historical thing we could look back on and say, well, we need to do this. And so there was a line in our budget that said establish a center at the Naval Postgraduate School. No, we didn't know what the Naval Postgraduate School was. My training guy, he came out to meet with him. He came out to Monterey, and uh, he came back and said, well, it's a great place, a beautiful facility, very bright people, and it's in Monterey, California. And I go, oh, Monterey, California. I said, I'm going to go to the next meeting. So I did go to the next meeting. I went to several meetings after that. But that was the genesis of it. It was Jim Moorhart's ability to make things happen based on our discussions. And it started out in a very elementary way. I mean, there was no curriculum. There was nothing that existed at that time. Uh, they were all Navy professors. They really didn't know. And the focus initially was state and local officials. Well, that was, that was certainly not there their strength or, or wheelhouse or educational background and, and dealing in the, with that uh, student cohort. So it took a while to, to, to kind of massage it and take some of the best information that was currently available here at the center, but also to, to put the contemporary state, local, federal perspectives that we were learning or establishing into a practical curriculum that has obviously evolved over time into uh, the premier institution. It does evolve, and it compounds on itself. And uh, personal experience, it's an amazing amount of material. And after graduating, had to go back and reread it because there's just so much to try to uh, internalize. It's it's an overwhelming amount of information, but it's so relevant. And and I, I learned an immense amount of material in such a short time period. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And that was actually the goal was to bring disparate organizations, perspectives and mission space and hopefully check your personal opinions at the door, but to sit down and have a very open discussion and focus on critical thinking about how do we develop and continue to implement programs that will help secure the nation against all threats. Obviously, initially it was it was terrorist threats, but today you look at well, you go, what's a threat to homeland security? I, I know it's a bad term to talk about, but you know, talking about global warming, that's a threat. You know, there are different political and different personal perspectives on that, but the reality is that is something that will affect. Now, is that something we can resolve here? No, but it's something that people can that are in the emergency management law that need to understand how those types of hazards, those types of uh, emerging threats might affect their ability to do their job and how they need to plan individually and collectively to mitigate those the effects of that should they, does something happen. Well, what's amazing about, <clears throat> just on the topic of climate change, what I really found interesting bringing all the people here from different backgrounds, if you go to the Homeland Security Digital Library, you could just type in climate change or global warming or whatever, whatever keywords you want and the number of theses that have already been written on it, you're taking people who might not have even had that in their mindset from some discussion in class. And, and you might have wanted the, the personal opinions to be left at the door. Actually, the program is enhanced because people don't. You come with a preconceived notion, and all of a sudden by the, you could watch the, the change in, in people, both extreme left or extreme right, when they come in there, and all of a sudden you have this better understanding because you're actually listening to these other people's opinions they pick up on something and all of a sudden write a thesis on something that they had no idea or didn't believe in. And uh, yeah, so so far, the, what you guys were able to 
conjure up out of out of piecing things together has truly uh, provided so much for the Homeland Security enterprise at, at large. Well, I think you're probably, you stated it better than I did. It wasn't check your thinking at the door, but it was to open your mind when you walked in the door so that you're receptive to hearing other things. And that's the whole, the difference in the mission of this program from all the other training that we do is that we're building an executive critical thinking structure here where people can go back and apply this. In some cases, things that seem to be fairly, how do you know, they were, you wouldn't think about they were relevant to your job until you go through this, this program here and then you see the effects and the benefits of having a much broader perspective on other people's opinions in particular, but also to sometimes reassess, kind of do a fact check of your own expectations and, and what you've kind of assumed you know or think. Well, I. I felt that myself. So I, I, you know, firefighters, we sort of are opinionated and, uh, I found that to be true. Yeah. And, and we know how to solve all the problems of the world as well <laughs> until you come into a classroom where I don't even know how I got accepted. Cause every, I walked into the classroom the first day and was like, why am I accepted here? Because the, the brilliance in the room and the minds of the, all those people just blew me away. Um, I can talk. So I think that's why well, I got in here. Say, intellectual knowledge and practical knowledge is what we wanted to bring to this. As I mentioned the other day when I was doing, I remember our Barnes Fourth group here, you know, if we get someone who has a master's degree and they're 22 years old, they have more knowledge, but they don't have the experience to apply that. Here, if you look around the tables and the cohorts of CHDS, it's such a wide range of experience. Uh, it's diverse from every aspect you think of, gender, race, and also, it's not a bunch of young kids. Right. There are very few really young people in this because it wasn't designed as just a check the box to get a master so you can get your first job. This was designed to develop a critical thinking capability throughout the public safety, emergency management, the whole realm of organizations that, that are a part of this system of systems that addresses Homeland Security to teach them how to think more strategically and how to be a little more open-minded, like we said, to, to look at things not from your narrow sphere of what, you're, what you do every day, but where the job that you do every day fits in context of all these other things. And, and I think that's been probably the most successful uh, aspect of this program is that the cohorts stay together. I'm constantly impressed by people that say, you know, it's such, it was such a challenging program, and it is, and I will have to give the students, their agencies, a kudo for allowing their employees to take advantage of this program. Because not only are you out of the office two weeks every three months going to Monterey, that's a real hardship, but you're constantly doing work. It's not like you just work every two weeks when you're here. I mean, there's an enormous amount of self-work right. uh, and engagement with your with your um, work groups and on things that you're working on together. And it's cross-disciplinary, which really kind of makes the, the opportunities or broadens the opportunities to, to feel more comfortable dealing with these people in other disciplines because you have a better understanding of what they do. Yeah, well, the format is set up in a hybrid manner that you spend the two weeks here, basically a week, the first, uh, the first week of your uh, session, 10 weeks away doing a ton of assignments. It's all online-based education at the point. And then you have your last week in residence, and then you'll start the next one. So you really get a solid, this is what you're working on, and then you have to collaborate with your, with your peers 
um, from from afar, and then mm-hmm. you finish up. And the camaraderie and the friendships that are developed do last a long time. I mean, I, I talked to a good portion of the people from my cohort just because you went through a extremely um, trying time <laughs> and you came out of it on the other side with these people. So you have a shared experience. And yeah. that shared experience, the, the, the diversity within my cohort, several people from various agencies within Department of Homeland Security, fire, law, emergency management, and health. And you're bringing the mindsets from so many disciplines together and you get such a great perspective of these other fields, things you might not have ever thought of. So what actually brought your guys' thought process or what guided your thought process to bring all these different entities together? Was it because there was lack of communication or what, what actually was the catalyst to bring all these different agencies and experiences together? Obviously, I worked for the Justice Department, and we dealt with grants, we dealt with crime, we dealt with uh, drug programs, and we dealt pretty much law enforcement, prosecution, corrections, all those people. I didn't know emergency management. You know, I, I, I knew the term, but I had no idea what it was. And fire, we had very little to deal with that. But once we were given the tasking to develop a, and it was that first $21 million we got in 1996. $5 million of that was to establish an, an awareness training, WMD awareness training program for firefighters. Okay. Well, I don't know anything about firefighters. And this is, things probably wouldn't, that's why I'd say this probably couldn't happen again today, but if our chief in Florida went to his congressman, I've forgotten, I'm not congressman, anyway, he was either on the House Subcommittee on Crime or the House Judiciary Committee. So obviously they had no oversight over FEMA, who had the fire administration. So all they had was ability to direct the Justice Department to do something. Well, they did. The Attorney General said, they gave the money to the Attorney General and said, do this. And that money was, she transferred that money to our office. And so we go, well, I don't know anything about this. So we sat down with the FEMA people. We met with uh, people at the fire academy and worked out a deal where they would help us. So they would realize right off the bat that if we don't know this stuff, it's probably in this new environment of Homeland Security, there's a lot of need to bring people together. And so we had focus groups, we had meetings with police, fire, we brought them all in and we listened to them. What are the biggest challenges? Because like I said, there was no guidebook on how to do this. And we, we engaged with them. And I think that's probably the most important part of any type of effort like this. If you get the buy-in of the people and you listen to them, and if you do it, that's good. If you don't, if you explain to them why you don't do it, just be honest with them. It started off in a real collaborative process. And then after that, it just exploded when we got into doing exercises and planning exercises. We just realized there were so many areas in between that were kind of gaps that you can't just fix the program by working with the police or fire service. It was kind of a, it was just kind of a, an evolving thing, but it was pretty apparent quickly right. that there was no panacea to solve this. It was not a cop problem. And our focus at that time was on response. So it wasn't on the prevention side anyway, so it was dealing with something to the right of boom, something had happened, and how do you address that and respond to for life safety and, and to do your your rescue? It was just, a, like I say, it was one of those once-in-a-lifetime things. There was a, a after 9-11, everybody kind of buckled up and said, we need to figure this out. This became a critical part of that evolution of the planning and the integration and the how government collectively plans and responds to these incidents. Was, uh, it, was it supposed to be started out as a master's program, or what did you start the school and the whole concept of, of, Naval, of Center for Homeland Defense? No, this started out as a graduate-level program. Okay. I mean, what we were trying to do was to, people had degrees in law enforcement, public safety, fire science, but 
what we wanted to do is to bring people that were responsible for those functions and give them a new perspective on this from critical thinking about the challenge of this Homeland Security mission. We didn't want to make them better police or better fire. They could never dictate what they wanted to do. That. And it had to be multidisciplinary because that was the, the understanding that everybody kind of reaches that we all got to do this together. We've all got to be on the same page. And if you're a fire service, you know that probably 15 years ago, the police and fire didn't even talk to each other. They had right. different systems, different way of, levels of communication, different equipment. It didn't change overnight, but it has changed. Uh, significantly, yeah. And absolutely. those types of decisions are made now more to make us more efficient and effective in responding and, and doing our jobs than it is to, how do I do my job and I don't really care about it. That's not my problem over there. Well, it's everybody's problem. This mission space is so big. You know, if you're dealing with a pandemic, the public health service is going to be the lead agency. It's not going to be the police. But the EMS people are going to be the poor people that are making the initial calls. That could be a private EMS be part of the fire service. So it was, again, how do you look at this and how do you decide how to allocate resources to identify and train and equip those people that are going to be involved in these very complex systems that are outside the norm of what you're used to doing? I didn't even realize that the first program was for the graduate degree. From that point, there's been multiple programs that have been added to the curriculum. And a graduate degree, especially over an 18-month intensive time period, not everyone can do. So there's been integrations of fusion center training and radiological training. Could you talk about the various programs that have been created and the thought process behind all that? Okay, good question. Obviously, a graduate degree, you've got a significant commitment of time, most Senior officials at that time didn't have time, interest, or inclination to participate in that. And this is who we were talking to at that time. It was Secretary Ridge, and he was—he he got this stuff. He got the state and local aspect of uh, homeland security. And so we were discussing with within the, the department and also with our our appropriators. The master's degree program is a critical piece, but that's more of a long-term. You're not going to see that investment right away. Mid-level managers yeah. eventually promoting through the ranks. and Exactly. And so what we've got are people that are in leadership positions right now that really don't. They're not sure what this Homeland Security thing is. So what we did, the initial step was to kind of come up with a, a abbreviated executive version of the master's degree program and give it to existing executives. Uh, one week in residence over every three months for, for a nine-month period. They come in every three months. And so it was... It did, that, again, evolved over time, too. I was, in the, I was in the second cohort, and what what they do today is completely different than that. I mean, it's like night and day. Mm-hmm. And it's not because what we were doing back then was not the right thing to do. It's because we know more about what we're doing today. And the people, to be honest with you, are much more a part of this Homeland Security mission space than they were when we first started this. Right. So that part of people understanding their role, but also understanding the need to understand other people's role and be respected. That is evident today. And so that was kind of the genesis of that. Well, what are we going to do for the people that are in trouble? You know, they're making decisions now. They can't, they can't train them or educate them in two months, in, in a year and a half, and, and let them develop. And 10 years from now, they'll be the, right. the leaders. They're the leaders now, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. And so we just started the executive leaders program. And then there were lots of other issues that were out there, you know, some of them were, were threat specific. You know, people said, gosh, we got a pro- we're concerned about this. Um, and we didn't want to be a consulting firm. But the evolution of that was to establish some kind of a, we called it a tripwire, which was the uh, metropolitan, the, the METS, mobile education teams, that went out at the request of a governor's office or mayor's office. 
and help facilitate a discussion. A seminar table, it wasn't, we weren't training them, we weren't educating them, but it was more to walk them through kind of a tabletop discussion about this issue and to help them from a, from a senior executive kind of understand how this might apply to them. One of my favorite examples, I won't say which state it was, big state. We were in the meeting with the governor and his key staff, all his cabinet. And the issue came up about quarantine. You know, what would you do if you had a, some type of situation where you had to quarantine? Well, he looked over at the attorney general and they didn't know because that, that's something they hadn't even considered. And I'm, not, and I'm sure that was consistent through all 50 states at that time. But they, go, they went back and researched what legislative authorities they had, and it was all legislation that was enacted in the early 1900s when you had all the, the mass migrations from Europe that were, you know, allowed you to quarantine new immigrants to keep them, you know, until you were sure that they didn't have infections, just like they did when they came in through uh, Ellis Island. You know, they had a whole hospital situation there to do that. So it was revelations like that, I think, woke a lot of people up and also opened everybody's eyes to just how complicated this is and just because you haven't had a requirement to do this, you need to know what you do need if and, if and when something like this does happen. So that gets more to the critical thinking. Uh, so everything kind of fed itself. But those tripwire things were also a chance for us to kind of get an idea of what, what the states and locals, what their big concerns were. And so we could kind of factor that into our planning process for either for additional training or uh, looking at what eligible things that were for the grant program to see if there were some things we could change to help, because they're dealing with problems. And the federal government, they don't move very fast, you know. It's very deliberative, very complex. Like I said, enacting that uh, Anti-Terrorism Act was the fastest thing I've ever seen in a year. But a mayor or a governor, they've got to make a decision to do something. They can't have a bunch of hearings and wait and see what the issues are. So we were looking at how do we better, through engaging with them, anticipate what some of these mainstream, not just emerging, but right now issues are. And uh, so those are the three main components that were established initially. Then it became the environment here and organizations that, like the Fusion Center, that was another, no one knew what a Fusion Center was, and we're still not sure, I'm thinking a lot of cases. But it's a very, that was a, a very controversial program, still is. I don't mean controversial in a negative way, but Again, it's like when they revised the intelligence operations of the federal government. You know, everybody's used to doing their own thing, and all of a sudden you've got this other center that comes in. And it was, as you can imagine, not the most easily implemented activity, particularly in large urban areas, which is right. where they're focused. What's really amazing about the fusion centers is that, um, since I am from Southern California, the JRIC is our, <laughs> our primary one, and I thought that's how all fusion centers work. And I think the JRIC and OKAYAK are great fusion centers. Then I started hearing about the other ones. I'm like, wow. And then I was in Philadelphia, and they gave me a tour of their fusion center. They took it to the next level. So it, it, they're, they're very different wherever you go. That's why when the fusion center program came out, I'm like, oh, let's try to get some, some conformity here. And, and, and what kind of successes did you have with that? Well, I think, exactly what you said, there are, to have a chance to sit down with your peers from... Uh, and talk about how they're approaching something is a lot more effective than reading, a, a, you know, something from a journal or seeing, you know, a five-minute podcast about something. You know, because then you can just really sit down. You can person to person really get some understanding about what's going on and have the advantage of having the intellectual leadership here at the center kind of direct that 
and kind of put some focus on it. I think that's really the, that's that's the value of this program is that it deals with a with a challenging issue, but not from a it's not the basic level. I'm not teaching you how to do a job here. I'm teaching you how your job, your job, big big J, is being done other way in other places. And also, again, it creates like you said that network where uh, I can pick up the phone and call this guy now if I got this issue. I can find out. And so you develop that camaraderie, and all of a sudden, it's kind of a self perpetuating thing. They'll help transition some approach to them, and, and that kind of stuff. But that's that's what you want to happen. And I've noticed that on a lot of def- different areas, when people have reached out to me when I was working within our homeland security, and from other fire departments around the country. And it, it, it's really interesting the network that's been created and the changes we can implement just by talking to somebody else. There's been new programs such as Emergence and also with HSX or Advanced Thinking. The HSX uh, is amazing in the, the thinking, not just out inside the box or outside the box, but throwing the box away and being f- completely original. No box. No box at all. And I, and, I, and I wanted just to know a little bit about the HSX program, and then we'll go to the uh, emergence, because you, you did mention already we're more mid-level professional, mid-level uh, management, uh, time and experience but emergence is just different from that. So if we could talk a little bit about the uh, advanced thinking HSX. Well, I will defer to Glenn on that one. That's okay. not that's not my bailiwick. I'm more I'm more the old school guy about the other stuff. But again, it's it's the way the program has evolved over time, as we understand better the challenges and the and the limitations. And you know, it's not a one size fits all. We don't just stick with the same pattern that we've used for 30 years and just do the same thing over and over. It's a constantly kind of a, a reassessment and a reinvention of, of how we do our outreach and identify what the, what, the, what the real issues are that need to be discussed. You know, at some point in time, we don't, need to, we don't need to talk about decontamination and all those things we need to talk about. You know, that was pretty easily rectified how you do that. But these the much more complex issues of Homeland Security and the things like we talked about today, you know, nanotechnology. Well, that's a pretty tough subject to listen to at, at nine o'clock in the morning. But if you if you look at that, again, that's one of those potential threats that you have to, you may not need to spend a whole lot of time, but at least needs to be in the back of your mind and to be open, again, is to, to look at this from a more critical thinking standpoint to not limit how you view things or what you perceive to be Important, right? Because if you talk to the average person, they don't take nothing. Little robots. I don't know what that is. <laughs> but if you listen to that presentation, there's enormous implications across the whole uh, spectrum of uh, of our society that has good and bad possibilities. I think what I'm going to do is actually the Tom Mackin is a professor here at, at uh, Naval Postgraduate School, and he's the one who presented that. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think I'm going to put him on here. That'll be good because. I wouldn't have thought of nanotechnology and then the implications to the Homeland Security um, realm. And I'm not a physicist. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It hurts my head sometimes. But uh, it really opens your mind up to the potential threats. And that's, that's one of the things that I think overall at the center is opening your mind. Shifting over to the emergence program, that's not taking people with a lot of experience. That's taking these young, um, new into the Homeland Security realm personnel or individuals and then bringing them here. So 
Do you know much about that program? Nope. Okay. Uh, that's, that's great. Perfect. That must be another Glenn thing. Um, well, it's, it's not an Andy thing. I don't know who it is, but it's not an Andy thing. Yeah. And so that is actually, my understanding of that program is actually tapping into the people who are new in here and actually, instead of hitting mid-level, you're hitting entry level so they, they can continue with an open mind and develop future programs. And they're the younger generation's knowledge of technology is just ingrained and so they're able to just take things to a whole new level well i think we've covered quite a bit um is there anything that we didn't cover that that you would like to maybe touch upon gosh i don't know like i said this is uh, it's kind of enjoyable to go back through the the history and kind of re-look at this because we can learn something from that i'm not sure what we learned from this other than we were uh under the gun to do something and we actually as a government did something which to me is uh the result we would hope to achieve. I think the lasting position for me on this is that when I talk to people like you, Frank, and others, just the their understanding of this 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 large complex system, but also the willingness and the open-mindedness and the opportunity to, to engage with your cohort peers. And I, I mean, if you look at the list of graduates of the the ELP or the master's program, you know, they're in senior positions throughout the government, uh, which is a good thing because sometimes government does like that. We plan in four-year increments in a lot of things, budget elections, things of that nature. So to have that critical assessment creep into the to this area and begin to um, fill positions that are making those longer term, more important decisions. You know, that's the value of this program. I mean, we don't, I'm not saying that other programs aren't extraordinarily valuable. I mean, there weren't any emergency, there weren't any Homeland Security or domestic preparedness graduate programs when we started that we were aware of. There's a lot of them now, but a lot of them were started through, you know, by involving with uh, the university program that we have here where we share this information, the UAPI program. So as another contributing part of what CHDS does, it's not like we just sit here on the hill and say ours is better than yours. We share this information. We convene groups of uh, educators from around the country. And, I, and to me, that's that, that's that collegial collaborative process that that is, is kind of the hallmark of this program. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I didn't even know about this program. A friend of mine mentioned it. I applied. I was in the middle of another graduate program, and then I got accepted. And I, I was like, what did I just do to myself? <laughs> uh, you should have scheduled that a little better. <laughs> yeah, it was back-to-back graduate programs. But the, the one thing is that... Um, what do you see as the difference between the two? This should be the a doctorate one. level. It, it, the, the quantity of information, the breadth of it, this should be more of a PhD. Um, it is a very challenging, demanding curriculum. Yeah, at least I didn't have a dissertation to write. I just had a very uh, a thesis, which is that a lot does easier. help a little bit. That helps immensely. Just the breadth of the material was just it's, it, it, again, it's it's overwhelming. Anyone who comes into the program needs to already be aware that it's going to be overwhelming, and don't get lost. They can go back and review the material later. And the I forgot who said it. it might have been Chris Bellavita. It's only a lot of reading if you read it. <laughs> The, the thing is, it is a lot of reading, and I think that the best thing with that is get through what you can, do the graduate level skim and scan, and then when you're done and you have time, go back and read it. Uh, so many of the professors here have written the books that we look at, and they're a wealth of knowledge 
that you're getting in the classroom, and then you read their book afterwards, and it just it's just it does work very well. So uh, I, I can't speak highly enough of the program uh, and what it's done for me, both on the critical thinking level and the ability to think beyond. Uh, of what my profession is and the interrelations with so many other disciplines. So um, with that, Andy, I really appreciate the time you've taken. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to come out here and uh, revisit uh, friends and colleagues out here. So I appreciate the opportunity to have a little discussion with you this morning and hopefully people better understand a little bit about how the program got started and kind of the genesis and also what the ultimate goals are for this uh, program and to encourage people to take advantage of this. It's a unique challenging organization to get into, uh, very selective, but for those like you and others that make it, it's a lot of work and it's worth it. Oh, absolutely. So again, thank you. And um, hopefully we'll see each other next year at Apex. Maybe so. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. So there you have it, Mr. Andy Mitchell. My greatest takeaway from this conversation is understanding how our past will help guide us into the future. In the 26 years since terrorism has become our reality, the capacity to prevent, prepare, respond, mitigate, and recover has been made possible from visionaries like Andy. The dedication, perseverance, willingness to work across the aisle, and the ability to bring disparate entities together illustrates the strength and resolve of the American people. Sadly, in today's environment, where confirmation biased media is the norm, that is even lost, even discouraged. Addressing this complex system of systems only may be accomplished with the unified efforts from each of us. The era of terrorism is not over. The widening divide within this country will only weaken us. I'd ask that we all open ourselves and our minds to differing perspectives and opinions. This is where our country's strength and resolve resides. Let's draw inspiration and guidance from the leaders and visionaries of our past. If you'd like to get in touch with Andy, you can email him at andy9225 at gmail.com. One last item. We seem to have had a technical difficulty with subscribing, notifications, and podcast downloads. We believe this has been addressed, but if you're still experiencing issues, let us know at homelandthepodcast at gmail.com. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host, and until our next episode, take care. Take care.